The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. I'd like to welcome back Bevan Jews to the show. Hi, Bevan. Hi, Dave. How are you going? Good, good. Um, now, the topic of this show is your Harvard NZ1044. Um, which has just been an amazing aircraft to see flying after three years of you owning and restoring it. Um, can we sort of go back right to the beginning of, do you remember when you first saw a Harvard when you were a kid? Oh, golly. 
that would probably be Wings of a Warrapper or something like that, I'd say. I can't really specifically remember the first time I saw a Harvard, but yeah. Yeah. No, they've definitely been a big part of all of the air shows around them. Um, the airplane that everyone needs to fly if they want to get into the to the heavy metal airplanes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, you'd certainly remember the first time you flew in one, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, so um, I remember I was probably 12 or 13, I guess, and I was actually at the drag racing in Masterton. They had the Corsair MP40 dragged over in the, in the kind of crowd area, and Laurie Gudsell had his um, Allison there. And was hanging around like a bad smell as I do around warbirds, <laughs> and I'm talking to him and, um, you know, flying and all that sort of stuff. And um, the topic came up of trying to go for a ride in an aeroplane, and um, he managed to talk to Rex Brereton and um, and arranged for me to go for a fly with him and his aeroplane, um, which was. Yeah, when I was probably, I guess, 13 or so. And okay. we did that over at Fielding. We went out and did some aerobatics and stuff. It was great. Fantastic. So that's, what, 16 years ago? Yeah. That's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. So that's um, that's pretty neat. That I, I was actually talking to Laurie down at the air show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he, he remembers vividly you coming up as a, a young boy and saying, how do I get into warbirds? And you know him explaining it all and everything, and um, yeah, it's it was the beginning of something, obviously, because now you own one and you fly one. So, um, were you were you involved with uh, the vintage aviator at that stage, or was that before you even started volunteering there? Um, it was probably before I started volunteering there, because um, I would imagine, or probably maybe around similar time. Okay, and what do you remember about that first flight with Rex? Um, I guess the 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 whole thing's just kind of a little bit overwhelming, I guess, for a you know kid getting into this thing. But uh, it was great. I really enjoyed the uh, the whole the whole experience, and um, that certainly kicked me in the direction of knowing it's really what I wanted to try and get involved with. That's awesome. That's so cool. And of course, uh, Rex's aircraft is, is very original. It's basically exactly how it was in the Air Force uh, in the 1970s when it retired and he purchased it. So um, when we look at your aircraft and it's it's very original in terms of how it would have been in World War II when it uh, was at um, number two fighter operational training unit. Um, there's, there's a few, there's a lot of Harvards around, but they they're all a little bit different, aren't they? And it's it's quite neat to see these ones that are, um, you know, they they're kept exactly how they would have been in the Air Force service. Yeah, um, it is yeah quite nice to have one that's slightly set apart from the others. Um, but yeah, I guess that that story kind of comes along. Um, a little bit further in the piece potentially. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you, you learned to fly when you started learning when you were sixteen, didn't you? So a little bit after. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I 
did a few flights um, through the ATC. Um, we used to do navigation exercises and things like that. Um, and, you know, that would be a way of doing, you know, like a flight a year or something like that. And we had a, a fundraiser um, walk that we did. Yeah. And the goal was always to try and raise the most money so I'd get the um, the hour flight with um, Kerry <laughs> so that <laughs> I could get a, an hour of flying out of it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> would have been probably in, <laughs> in hindsight it would have been cheaper just to go to work and <laughs> for the 20 or you know for the hours yeah but um no that was great so it was good motivation but I didn't want to really start doing the flight training until I was 16 um because I didn't want to have hours under my belt and have the torture of not being able to go solo right um and then yeah did my first solo and things on the um power flying course through ATC down at Woodburn. Yep. Yep. So how long was it before you actually got into a Harvard uh to actually start learning to fly? Or was it actually the T six Texan that you um it was well yeah my first proper Harvard flying I guess was in the the T six G down at Mochwaker. Yeah. Um I did um did a few hours with Bill Hain down there, who's incredibly generous and in allowing me to fly his aeroplane. Um, I had the kept the chippy down in his hangar when I was at NAC down at the flying school there for six months. Once I left school, finishing my CPL, and got to know him quite well. And, yeah, and his wife Marcy, the lovely couple. Yeah. And so actually getting to to fly one from the front seat must have been pretty neat, was it? Yeah, sure was. It was. Definitely a bit of a step up from the chippy. It's a um, bit of a big brute compared to a, the little chippy, but um, yeah, and it's certainly a good challenge into Mochu Acre as well. It's only it's at 680 metres, I think, from memory, with hedges and trees at both ends, which is you know cosy for a Harvard. Mm, yeah, you want to Jeez. get it right. And then I did some circuits and stuff from the back seat as well, and that was certainly a good eye opener. Okay. Um, especially into Machuca, but yeah, and no, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and then since then, you've continued with uh, Harvard flying uh, in the likes of ten ninety eight. Um, yeah, and with Ace Edwards aircraft. Um, yeah, so Ace has been really generous in allowing me to fly his aeroplane too. And um, before that, um, Doug's one in Australia, Doug Hamilton's at Wangaratta. Um, I did my first Harvard solo and his one <laughs> off his farm strip. <laughs> All right. right. One way uphill <laughs> strip. Well, that was good character building stuff, but surprisingly, the Harvard actually really quite likes the strip. So um, that was not too much of a problem. So you've, you've built a few hours in the Harvard and then uh, all of a sudden, you are offered a Harvard. Now tell me about where, where did this Harvard come from, 1044? So um, what, the, the actual buying of it part or the the history before that? Oh, well, we'll talk about you buying it and then we'll go into the history of it. All right. Um, well, I got a message from um, Cam McKenzie who owned the airplane before me 
um, asking if I knew of anyone that wanted a Harvard project, and I didn't really know of any Harvard projects around. I said, um, you know, flick us the details of this one, and I'll um, pass it on to a few people that might be interested, never know. And he sent me the details and some photos and things, and I thought that I probably should go and have a look at it myself. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so after talking with a couple of people and um, I went down and had a look at it and arranged for Callum Smith from Monica to come up and have a look at it um, with me so we could get a bit of an idea of what was involved. Yeah. And, yeah, a deal was done. So, um, yeah, week beforehand or week or so beforehand, I didn't even know the airplane existed and suddenly I... <laughs> owns a thing <laughs> it's kind of funny if you get a, just an email saying that Harvard project it could be anything from you know a wreck through to what you got which was a complete aircraft basically wasn't it yeah I certainly wasn't expecting that because I remember um there's Mark II fuselage that ended up on trade me a while back which I think was Pete McCorder's one Pete McCorder's oh yeah but yeah. um I remember seeing that on trade me way back in the stone age and I, I had kind of visions that this project would be looking like that and I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And um yeah, so I was a mild surprise to see that it was a pretty complete airplane. And it was um it was painted white all over and uh the wings were off it. It was stored in the back of a hangar. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah it was quite it's quite complete, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah well, but on a you know initial inspection it was certainly looked like it was pretty much all there um the control surfaces and things there was a you know a lot of that stuff was in a storage unit um and you know right from the beginning you could see that you know, they were covered with aluminium instead of fabric which yeah. was done during the training school days um but otherwise you know it all looked pretty good um and you know there's a the odd rumor around about yeah, that it had some stuff done to it during the training school days, which was a bit of a worry, but you know, we couldn't really see much of that. And it was kind of a gamble um, when we bought it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Overall, it looked pretty good. So I thought we'll give it a go. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it was well, a good punt because once you actually got it to Wanaka and started to pull it apart, you found it was pretty, pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, so um, it was a bit of a painful thing, the whole deal, because, of course, you know, bought the airplane beginning of, no, what was it, end of February 2020. Mm. Yep. And then we all got cooped up for three months or so. Yeah. Um, Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of during that time, managed to um, tear up getting the airplane down to Wanaka. Um, just made the most sense to have it sent down there because um, the transport of the airplane wasn't exactly going to be very easy. No, true. Um, I remember at it, one stage we were actually talking about getting the army involved and, and had them teed up, didn't we? And then, the yeah, so, yeah, we got that to the point where they were keen to do it as an exercise, but their time frame was too long. Um, and I actually managed to tee up the trucking outfit from um, Arrowtown that moved the airplane from its previous 
owners place in Rolleston right. down to Ashburton. Um, so I think from memory, Cam or no, it might have been Dan Coleman worked for them back in the day, and he moved. He brought the truck up, and they moved it down. Okay. Um, to Ashburton. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we got up to Wanaka and stuffed it in Callum's little wee hanger that he had at the time, and um, yeah, started pulling it to bits in June of that year. Yep. And yeah, as we were pulling it apart, uh, overall it looked to be in surprisingly good condition. Especially when we opened up the tank bays and everything, and it was just like kind of like almost brand new inside. It was kind of quite a surprise. Um, yeah, there was you know, a few little repairs and things that needed doing, but nothing really that significant. Yeah, yeah. So, um, being f- like the the history of it, um, we probably should talk about its history because it's probably the, the lowest houred flooring uh, Harvard in New Zealand, wouldn't it be? Because it didn't actually do much after the war, unlike most of the ones that are flying. Yeah, so <clears throat> it flew, what, the second half of 43 through to the end of the war. Yeah. It went into storage, then came out again in 1954. And it was the first to go through the Star Upgrade program. Um, and then yeah, flew fifty four to fifty eight, but um, and then into storage again. So yeah, pretty sure it would be the lowest time one flying now. But I know ten thirty three in Masterton um has a, I think it's got about two and a half thousand hours on it now, which is the same as mine. But right. of course, that hasn't flown for nearly seventeen years now. I think. Right, right, right. Okay. No, 14 um, years. Yeah. Uh, mm. now, as I said, it, it was uh, painted white. It was a glossy white paint. Uh, you brought in a company to strip the paint off. Tell me about that process. Yeah, so being the middle of winter in Wanaka, um, where there was a lot of deliberation of how to go about paint stripping the aeroplane because most paint strippers, you need a bit of heat to um, really get the paint stripper to work. And Wanaka in the middle of winter is stupidly cold. Um, So there wasn't really a a viable way of doing it. Um, By the time you kind of hire heaters and get all that sort of stuff, it was getting pretty out of control. Um, And someone put me on to Aquamax. I think that was me. Yeah, I can't remember um, how that all came about. But conveniently, so they're based in Wellington. Their, their truck was in Christchurch doing a job and when I called them up um, yeah they were not too far off finishing so they were able to come the next week uh, which was ridiculously good timing yeah, and uh, um, and they came and stripped the airplane so it's like a high pressure water blaster with a um, rotating nylon head I think that's nylon one of the whatever material head yeah um, so you don't end up with any, um, you know, paint stripper or anything silly like that um, between the lap joints, which was kind of a bit of a worry. Yeah. Um, with conventional method, but yeah, so we had the whole airplane stripped, including all of the fairings and everything. It was about three and a half days, which was pretty good. Um, the when we paint stripped the wings, 
the white was just straight over the top of the old RNZ AF paints to underneath. We were able to kind of take it off layer by layer and you could see the old um the old silver paint with the yellow bands and roundels and everything, which were all still real vibrant. Um but the paint that was on the fuse was an absolute bugger to get off. It was they must have paint stripped that during the NAC days and um and used their seriously grunty aligned primer on it because yep. that stuff wasn't shifting. Oh, we got to the end. Yeah. yeah, so and that um during the time of um the lockdown, I think we stumbled across can't remember exactly where we stumbled across it, how it came about, the photo of um ten forty four lying sort of but forlorn on one wingtip. Um, we found that we, we found that on the forum, on the bonds forum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, okay. because until then, um, you were kind of considering putting it into. We only had photos of it post-war, with the, the yeah. silver and the yellow bands, and then when we found that, it was like, <clears throat> wow. Yeah, initially I wanted to put it in that yeah silver and yellow band scheme, mm. um, that fifties scheme, same as ten thirty three, but yeah, so. When we discovered that it had camouflage paint, that just flicked my mind, and was like, "We definitely have to paint it camouflage." Yeah. Um, and that's where the whole thing started of trying to get the airplane, you know, slightly different to all of the other Harvards that are flying, and try and incorpor incorporate some of the early features, um, like the gunner's canopy and spinning back seat and mast and antenna and bomb racks and cowl and gun and all those things yeah. um, to try and set it apart. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, I talked over you before when you were talking about that photograph that we found. Um, it was, and it had the um, port undercarriage had collapsed whilst it was taxiing, so it was really not much damage done to it at the time. Um, just just the wingtip, I think, wasn't it? And the, maybe the aileron. Yeah, wingtip and aileron. Which got replaced, and it's really interesting because uh, at one point, uh, later, after we'd found that photograph, uh, I, I went to the National Archive to get um, an accident report, or the, the accident report on that, but I also found another one. Uh, and, the, and the aircraft had had an accident only, I think it was three days into service, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's incredible. It, it had only just arrived at a Haki, it got into service with number two fighter operational training unit, and a pilot took off. Uh, and according to the accident report, um, cloud just appeared out of nowhere. It, it hadn't been cloudy when he took off, and he's flying in this cloud for ages. And he got a, a really bad feeling about it, so he decided to turn, to turn back, and just just as he did, he struck a wire that was on the on the hillside that he almost flew into, and um, so he turned just at the right moment to not hit the hill, and he broke the tel telephone wires, and the wires wrapped around the wing and the tail um and he got back to ahakia and really interestingly is there was a few photographs in there and it showed us that when the aircraft arrived in new zealand and, and first went into service it was bare metal um, yeah and, it, and and we could see that it had the gunner's canopy and stuff on it then mm, as well yeah yeah exactly and, and what's really cool is that we then knew that it wasn't factory applied paint um because a lot of them came in camouflage from the factory, 
but it was actually New Zealand applied camo paint. So that actually helped uh, uh, when it came time to find out what all the colours were because you then went to Bath or Nathan Brosher at the uh, the Air Force Museum to help with putting together the actual paint scheme and knowing that it had been painted out of Hakia uh, in the camouflage, he then knew it was New Zealand made paint that was on it. And that's why if you look at the aircraft, it's slightly different colours, different shades from what Harvard 1015 um, was wearing before it had its accident. Because uh, that represents the factory applied paint. Yeah, that worked out quite good. Um, we were super lucky with um, Bath helping us out, um, and he, well, we were able to borrow some original samples as well to mm. get the paints matched. Um, so now it was that that made a huge difference to getting the scheme reasonably accurate and then okay yeah where was it that we found those photos flying past Mount Rapehu oh now I was just looking through old newspapers and I saw a photograph taken from a Harvard of Mount Rapehu erupting in 1945 I think it's about February 45 or something like that no it might have been might have been May yeah May Um, and I, I remember thinking at the time, and I think I said to you, it'd be funny if that's 1044. But mm. a, little, a, a little bit later than that, I managed to get a copy of, um, uh, uh, what's his name? The, the logbook of uh, Cohen, Ron Cohen. And in his logbook, it said he flew a Harvard with a, a photographer in the back, taking photos of the thing erupting. <clears throat> the dates in the logbook corresponded with the, the photograph in the newspaper and it was 1044 that he was flying. And then we managed to find uh, somewhere else, we managed to find some more photos of that. Was it in the archive or somewhere? From yeah, that I think it might have been. Yeah, I think it was there. And, and you can actually see the wingtip and the aileron have been replaced. So it's after the accident and they're, they're silver. Um mm. So yeah, yeah. That, that, that and then improved it, and that and having that photo helped a lot with getting the camouflage lines mm. as kind of close as we could. And then we f there was another photo of it flying past in the opposite direction, so it had also had a photo of the right wing as well. So uh, that yeah, helped, right. yeah, helped a lot um, to try yeah. and make it as close as we could. It was really cool piecing together everything bit by bit over time in the detective work to make that. I mean, you know, you had a lot of pro a long process of restoration before we came to the paint scheme. So this all happened over time. But it's really mm. cool that we found the right things at the right time and could make it so accurate. Yeah, it was. I think we worked out. So there's the A and the B scheme for the camouflage. I'm pretty sure 1044 is the B scheme. Yeah, I believe so. Mm. We also, there's another photo of it in a lineup at a Hakia. It's like a long distance photo. Do you remember that one? Mm. And yeah, sort of I was going to bring that up before. Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Well, no, I was going to say that that was a good early photo of it. Um, is this the one you're saying about it being in bare aluminium next to all of the camouflage Harvards? Yeah, yeah. And if you zoom right in, you can actually see the word, the, the number 1044 on it, can't you? 
Yeah, well, it was quite good. It was, <laughs> it was almost a shame in a way that we found that photo after we'd painted it because it would have been kind of cool to fly it and bare aluminium for a bit. Yeah, and then painted it later or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, oh, man, what a nightmare keeping aluminium bare looking nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, it probably didn't look nice, and that's probably why they decided to paint it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a Harvard in bare aluminium sitting in the Ohaki weather day in, day out? It wouldn't be good. No, no, it wouldn't be great. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, that the paint scheme, if you look at it now, uh, you look at the roundels, the blue on them, is a, it's, a, it's a blue you won't have seen. Quite before. light. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? And that's that's matched to the New Zealand roundel blue, which is, you know, we haven't seen a warbird wearing that, I don't think. No. So that's quite cool. Certainly, no. Normally, it's that really dark um, blue, which I can't remember what the name of it is. Well, I think no. it's just like the RF roundel blue sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> no, no, but it's great that we managed to kind of get all that sorted out. Yes. Yeah. Um, the actual painting of the aeroplane was probably, you know, the mechanical stuff and sorting out the systems and everything was relatively straightforward. And you know, we're super lucky that parts for Harvards are relatively available out of the States. Yeah. Um, it's just a case of pretty much handing over money. Um, and it's all actually surprisingly reasonably, you know, reasonably priced. Yeah. Um, and you, know, you get undercarriage pivot pins that turn up and they're still wrapped in their grease paper from 80-some-odd you know, years ago or <laughs> you know, a cylinder for a flap ram that's still wrapped in grease paper. It's, it's quite nuts, really, when you think about it. That's amazing, isn't um, it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that side of it was relatively straightforward and you know, putting all the new cables and everything in it and... Um, overhauling the rest of the hydraulic system. Yep. Yeah, there's lots of it, but it's reasonably straightforward. But the painting of the aeroplane was probably the single biggest challenge of the whole thing, which kind of seems a bit ridiculous, but um, there's a lot of bits to paint in Harvard, especially yep. when you've got it, you know, all apart. Yeah. By the time you strip everything, inspect it, clean it up, get it ready to go again but just the painting of the outside of the aeroplane um excuse me you know it's the first camouflage paint job that i've been involved with and it was also the first camouflage paint job that the painters down in monica um had been involved with as well so there was a lot of learning going on um you know we're calling heaps of different people and you know trying to get their little tips and tricks of how to do camouflage because there's nothing easy about it. Yeah. Um, and especially since we didn't really want to paint the aeroplane together because um, otherwise you end up with lots of, you know, panel overlaps and everything that haven't got um, appropriate paint on them or when panels move slightly when you're, you know, refitting them, you end up with, um, lines that don't match up and all that sort of stuff so we right. painted pretty much everything separately and that created a, a lot of challenges especially with the green trying to get it to settle properly the darker colors are more susceptible to um, the matting base 
not settling properly. So if well not that's probably not quite the right term, but um it's more noticeable um if you depending on how you paint it, the sheen can change quite easily. Yeah. Um so you know, like parts we painted vertical were more shiny than the parts that were horizontal. So when you go and put the big, huge, huge, large side panels on trestles and paint them and get the camouflage line on them, and then go and stick them on the side of the aeroplane and match the green to the green on the rear fuse, <laughs> and the rear fuse is really nice and matte, and the side panel is like satin. Oh, That's like, ah, oh, god damn. <laughs> Painting ass. So it took us quite a while to get that sorted out. Um, we had a few other pain issues early on in the piece, but um, that corrected. Um, and we changed the um the type of paint we were using. So the matting base seemed to be separating from the um from the paint as it was being sprayed. So it went like it kind of had a sandpaper sort of texture to it, right. which was not ideal. And the colors came out all weird. It was. I don't know, there's something real weird going on with that paint, but we ended up using the fleet, uh, Imran Fleetline um, paint, and that, that worked real good. Um, the guys at Brazilian Automotive did a good job getting that matched up for us, using okay. those original samples. Yep. Yeah, um, cool. And poor Ronnie, the painter, did his head in a few times trying to work out how to get this blooming camouflage right. But, yeah, I've learned a lot, and I keep saying that I'm never going to paint an airplane camouflage again but the sad reality is I kind of know how to do it now so um, yeah. it wouldn't be such a big challenge next time <laughs> but <laughs> I think people underestimate just how many hours of work there are in a paint job Yeah, yeah. people think it's just you know slap some paint on it but holy smoke there's some serious hours in the prep work and you know yeah. getting it all done and Every different color you do, except for the brown and green, which are done at the same time, is you know days in between and heaps of masking. The number of times that we mask that airplane completely for one little speck of paint yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah, we must have filled many skip bins with masking and you know um, newspaper and uh, not newspaper, uh, brown paper and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, there's a, it's definitely a huge job, and that's why it costs so much as well. I mean, people go, yeah. oh, you know, why can't you just paint your, your plane every year in a different color scheme? Well, the reason is... It's, it's a, under grand. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge job, and it costs a fortune, yeah. you know? And yeah. and and you've been, in with your example, you did most of the prep work yourself, and, and uh, Ross yeah. helped you, and, and um, Lucy helped you, your partner, and, yeah. uh, you know, so... You know, you're cutting down costs, but it's still big money. Yeah, super lucky that the guys allowed me to do most of that prep work. Um, and yeah, having Ross's help was absolutely wicked. And you know, Lucy, when she was around as well, was bloody fantastic to have an extra set of hands because it's definitely mind-numbing work yeah. um, doing the prep. But, you know, it's essential that it's done right, so can't cut corners there just pay for it later yeah i mean that that's part of what my trade was in the air force and even though i didn't actually work for very long in the paint shop i was involved in a couple of um uh 
repaints of aircraft, including the Avenger that uh, Plonky that was went down to mm. uh, Wanaka, and that was that was like I think there was like five or six of us working on that, and that took a week at least, and we we weren't even stripping it or anything like that. Uh, we we just sort of scuffed it back and and put paint over the top because the yeah. paint, paint underneath was good. So um, and you probably. I guess you probably would have painted it all together too. You wouldn't have pulled, you know, like each individual panel off. Yep, correct. Yep, yep, exactly. But you know, you you you'd spend most of the time masking and and you know the markings. I mean, just the markings alone that that's a huge job putting on all the different colours and layers and all the stencils, all that sort of thing, and and getting the stencils right. Uh, yeah. So that was like, one thing that we were lucky with was Bath as well as he. Um, was able to make us a lot of the stencils. So, yep. Um, that was that was quite ideal, and it's nice to have all of the soft edges and stuff on the stencils rather than you know, a lot of the vinyl stuff that people stick on. Yeah. These days, because it's a bit you know cheaper and easier. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I, I wanted to try and you know have that sort of detail. Accurate, and yeah. it, and it, like when you get up close to it and you look at it, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's yeah, definitely the way it all blends in, and it's not a hundred percent perfect. It's you know, um, slightly industrial looking some of the stencils, but it's how they were. They were yeah. not a hundred percent perfect. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the thing was, uh, you know, in nineteen forty three or forty four, when that aircraft got its camouflage painted on it they didn't have painters in the air force my trade didn't start till 1949 so they just used anybody around the hangar who could use a spray gun so it was going to be a lot more industrial in real life um than it is now i mean it's even though there's no way in hell that i was going to paint it the same way they did back then (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no but it looks beautiful i mean honestly it looks stunning in the air that that color underneath the was it New Zealand Sky Blue? I think they call it. Uh, ducky blue. Ducky blue, yeah. It's uh it's it's more green than blue. It's it's a it's a lot more green than the than the British mm. ducky blue. It changes depending on what the background is. Mm. It's weird. Sometimes it looks very blue and then other times it looks quite green. Yeah. Yeah. It, it but it's a beautiful colour. It just looks really good. And with those markings on it and and uh it's particularly when um, you know the lights are on and everything it just stands out it looks really great yeah yeah we made the paint pretty much as matte as you could make it without losing the integrity of the paint as well so that's that it really was one of the biggest challenges glossy is easy but matte oh geez it's not fun yeah 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 um so tell me about uh that um you mentioned the canopy the gunner's canopy yeah so in the 50s when they went through the star upgrade program they um got rid of all of those and fixed the kind of the rear part of the canopy to the airframe so that um you know only the i guess how would you describe it the actual canopy part itself slid yeah the access Um, yeah the access part yeah slid um yeah, so during the war, um, they had a scarf, or some of the airplanes had scarf rings in the back um, with the, the rear seat that would spin around to train the air gunners. 
And um, yeah, I decided that I wanted to turn the Europe since we found that photo of it with the, um, you know, after the praying with the gunner's canopy, I thought, oh, I'm going to chuck all that stuff back in it. Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of consulting going on with like the, the likes of Gavin Conroy and things. Because um, uh, when you've got that, it makes it a really good camera ship. Yes. It, it, you've got you know the whole canopy out of the way and you can turn around and face backwards rather than breaking your neck trying to take photos facing, you know, screwing around on a forward facing seat. Yeah. Um, yep. And I thought, oh, yeah, this would be a piece of piss. This would be a real easy job. Um, and how wrong was I again? <laughs> um, it turns out there's a heck of a lot of bits by the time you get all of the extra floorboards, derivet the canopy to put a new fitting in with the, the lever arm in it and you know all of the extra rail that you have to put in yeah. um, for the rear canopy to kind of tilt over the top of your head as you're sliding the canopy forward um and what else yeah i had to get a whole new rear seat frame with the pivoting mount on the bottom yeah um so <laughs> it turned into an incredibly expensive exercise um <laughs> but it's pretty cool because none of the others have got it in new zealand um so yeah, I think um, the last the last one to fly like that in New Zealand would have been ten ninety nine, which is in Australia now. Yeah, Charles Darby had. Um, yeah, that's the one. And that left in the two thousands. So. Um, yeah, We're early two thousands, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's it's certainly something that's pretty cool to see that canopy going up and down, and it's it's quite different. <clears throat> and, yeah. So. You're intending to eventually remount a, um, the gun scarf in there, aren't you? Yeah, so I have been looking for a scarf ring for it for a long time. Well, three years or so now, I guess. Yeah. And um, finally managed to find one in Australia. Um, so I'm still missing a few parts. The actual mount for the gun um, I'll still be missing, but... Um, yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to find one at some point and a spade grip to go on the back of the 30 cal. Um, but yeah, um, narrowing down the parts that I'm missing quite quick, well, you know, over time. Yep. Um, yeah, so we've, I think the only other things that for the whole airplane that I really still want to try and find is, yeah, those last bits for the, the, the rear seat gunner and, um, some two hundred and fifty pound bomb tails. So I can make some two hundred and fifty pound bombs up for right. hanging under the hanging under the airplane. Right, right. And they're the British version, are they? The yeah, the bombs. British tapered bombs. Yeah, it's a. There, I think they're a number ten tail. Is what I'm after the British number ten tail. If anyone out there um, can help Bevan, then get in touch. Yeah. That'd be much appreciated. Um, so when we, yeah, what else have we done? So we've got the little bomb racks um, on the aeroplane for air shows, and they're wired up so they they can work um, from the cockpit. It's all, all, you know, the whole armament panel's all wired up to work. Yep. yep. 
um, but we're not carrying them. I just um, have them all locked on so that they can't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, having the gun sight and everything and it that all works. Um, the you know the gun side of things it's all wired up to where the solenoids would be uh, in the wing and in the cowling. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've got two guns for it that are in armory down in Christchurch that hopefully eventually, depending on how the gun rules and everything go, in the next wee while it'll be nice to be able to fire blanks um with it. Yep. That'd be awesome. But yeah, we'll see how that all unfolds. So actually but with the scarf ring in the back, that it'll end up with three guns. Uh yeah. which yeah, that's that's actually quite cool. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, so three thirty cows in it, which would be quite nice. Make it a bit heavy, wouldn't it? Three guns. Yeah, it's not too bad. Um it's kinda interesting, you know, having all the bomb racks and everything under it slows it down a bit, but it doesn't really seem to affect the you know, the stall speed or anything like that much, but it's That's just it. draggy, draggy as hell. Yeah. Um but yeah, so Got all those things in the airplane, and um, yeah, it was. What else? What else did we try and do that was a bit different? Oh, you've got the uh, gun sight working too, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So I've got pilot's, that working. Pilot's gun sight. Yeah, that's quite cool to have. Um, a lot of people said to me, "Oh, you'd get pissed off with that pretty quickly." You know, being right in front of your face, yeah. um, and the mast and everything. Yeah. Um, but actually. When you're flying it, to, to be honest, you don't even notice the gun sights there, and the masts hardly ever look at it or notice it's there either. It's actually quite a good thing um, <laughs> if you when you're sitting on the ground, if you've got a you know a, a spark plug that's fouled or whatever, you have a look at the top of the mast and you'll see it got a little bit of a wobble going on. Oh right. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 you can you can feel when you've got a, a bung spark plug anyway, but yeah, you just look up and you can you can see the mast wobbling. Right, okay. But what's the mast made from? Is it wood? Uh yeah, it's wooden mast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. with fabric covering. Yeah, it it looks so cool with that mast on. Uh, um, a lot of the harbors used to have them in New Zealand. They've all taken them off. Yeah, I don't really. You know, apparently they take like a knot or a knot and a half off or whatever your cruise speed but um, the biggest pain in the butt thing with it is the fact that it's so tall it makes the airplane almost bang on four meters tall yeah um, which narrows your options for hangers a lot um, which I think is probably one of the main reasons why they all came off um, yeah that's that is a pain and um, I didn't want to put any modern aerials and things hanging off it, so we put the VHF aerial up inside the mast um, so that, yeah, we didn't have any modern spikes sticking out of it. Yeah, cool. Okay. And um, so, and the engine went up to Ardmore. Um, you had the decision of whether to send it to the States or get it done in New Zealand. Yeah, so it was a decision that was made pretty early in the piece. Um, I kind of hit Greg up about it as soon as I bought the airplane. It was, it was about a week afterwards. I was up there for the Warbirds Open Day in March, just before we all got locked down. 
Yeah. Um, I was talking with Greg about it and, you know, his idea of whether we just bulk strip it or um, quite what, um, or send it to the States. And he offered to do it, which I'm sure he probably regretted very shortly afterwards. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so the reason we didn't send it to the States is because um, it had pretty low time cylinders on it and a heavyweight crankshaft and a few other goodies that that the Americans seemed to like. So, um, yeah, we didn't want to risk losing those bits. Right. Um, so... That was one of the big reasons of getting it done here. Um, initially, we were just going to bulk strip the engine because it only had, oh, I think, 697 hours on it. Okay. Um, and the civilian TBR is 1,600 hours, so it would have 1,000 hours still to go. But when we got into it, um, it was some parts that were in you know, slightly average, excuse me, slightly average condition, so... Um, it was decided just to do a full overhaul on it, um, yep. which turned out to be a pretty good decision. And it's nice to know that the air, you know, the heart of the airplane is, you know, you know, fully up to speed and it's been totally gone through. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty short-sighted thing. Sure, the engine's reasonably expensive, but. You know, spend all that money on the airframe just to take a shortcut on the engine is pretty silly. So yeah, thought we'd better do it properly. Yeah. Um, Plus, and, you, uh, won't, you, know, you won't that's... have to do it for a long time as well. Yeah, and it's you know my butt on the line. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Greg and the guys up there did an awesome job on that. Um, took quite a while due to COVID and you know lack of being able to get parts and things out of the states. That was a real big challenge. Um, and then yeah, they did the propeller as well, and that needed quite a lot of work. Um, it, we had to replace the piston and the cylinder on the front, and get the blade roots ground at um, Airbus down in Blenheim, which was a horrendously expensive exercise. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the guys and um, we managed to get a couple of the older guys back. <laughs> into the workshop at field air and drag out all the old tools so they could do the master rod bearing um, and things for me there because Greg didn't have the tools to do that. Okay. Um, so yes, so they did a magic job there. Um, yeah. And eventually we got an engine together and a prop and um, that was pretty much the last piece of the puzzle. Um, and earlier this year, Greg came down after I'd installed the engine and help with the you know final little last bits and pieces, and then we dragged the thing out um, and ran it with a test club. Yeah. Um. So four blade wooden club propeller, which is about the diameter of the engine. So, and it's got a real coarse pitch on it, so it drags a heap of air through and loads the engine up well. So we did four hours with the test club. Um. It was quite interesting to see the difference between. You know, running it with the test club versus when we put the big Hamilton standard prop on it with the lack of inertia on the wooden blades or the short wooden blades of the club, it didn't really want to idle very well. Okay. But, you know, as soon as you get up to a thousand RPM, it was, you know, smooth as it was real good. Yeah. But below that, it, you know, just didn't really have enough inertia to keep itself 
um, going smoothly. Um, yeah, and the temperatures and everything stayed pretty cool with the test club, but as soon as we put the Hamilton standard on it, um, you know, the cooling is nowhere near as good on the ground. Yeah. And, but it, you know, just rolled into life really nicely with the all the inertia of the metal blades. So, and then all the um, high power tests and things, getting the prop set up all went well. And, um, and then a few false starts with the CAA getting um, to get the airplane um, at CFA. Um, we eventually got there. So uh, there was a day and a half with them looking over the, all the paperwork yeah. and then the airplane briefly. Uh, and they, I did three hours of test flying. So they were there on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And I, I said to them, I'll have the paperwork on your office desk on Monday morning for you to, for them to give me the limited category survey. I think they didn't really think I'd get it all done, but it was the airplane performed really well when I flew it. So um, the test flying itself was reasonably straightforward. Um, all we needed to do was a slight adjustment on um, the aileron as it had just a tiny roll to the left and one taco was being a little bit temperamental on, and that was pretty much the only problems we had so oh, yeah. that's awesome that, that's fantastic that such minor little things after all that time sitting on the ground it was almost 65 years to the to that day wasn't it it was only a few weeks off 65 years it been uh i think it last flew in may may oh, okay may. um 58 so yeah 64 and a half years mm. Um, but yeah, no, or, and having been pulled apart and put together five million times during that time. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the the uh, apprentices put it together well. No one stuffed it up. Yeah, no, it's quite surprising how little actual airframe damage or anything there was. Um, you know, it was. Yeah, the whole thing was reasonably surprising really overall how how good it was um and i've I think, done oh, was okay. it? i was gonna say i think you did find something that they'd left behind there that some of the apprentices <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um and the rear, rear fuselage is a whole load of like the whole rear fuselage inside is just totally full of random silly messages and horribly filthy poems and all sorts from the apprentices <laughs> when they were there um and then inside one of the flaps when we were stripping that um we saw this i saw this little message and it said something along the lines of i worked my ass off on this flap and it's not even going to be used um <laughs> if an ironic ain't it um <laughs> And then, yeah, so interestingly, of course, that is going to be used now. So, and you left, that, you, you left that graffiti, didn't you? It's still there. Yeah, so it's all still in that. We masked it all, well, masked that piece and the flap off. So, um, when the flaps are down under the right side, there's this dark green square <laughs> or rectangle amongst this nice shiny silver flat bay. But yeah, we couldn't get rid of that. And then, yeah, all of the stuff inside the 
rare fuselage is still in there. So the condition of it was so good in the airlock, there was next to no corrosion. So we were able to leave a lot of that stuff without having to strip the inside. Excellent. It'd be great to know if that guy's still out there that wrote that on the flap. <laughs> yeah, I suspect he must have been Fijian, given that the, his passing remarks at the bottom about the teachers um, was written in Fijian so that That's the right, teachers dude. couldn't understand it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing because it's reasonably rude. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, that seems to be playing the game now and we've got it home again and um, yeah, so I've done about 25 hours I think in it now. Um, got the first fuel bill last mm-hmm. week and nearly died. <laughs> a bit, bit more um, than the chippy. Yeah. Um, but no, that's all part of the fun. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, took it down to the idea initially was to try and debut here at Wings Over Warrapa, but um, with the last few things, as always, take longer than you expect. Yeah. And then the show got cancelled or postponed. So um, the next natural thing was Classic Fighters, and it ended up being perfect timing to have the test flying done on the aeroplane and um, not have to rush anything. And yeah. we had just over 20 hours on it by the time we took it to the show um and pete mccomb and i um he's airline friend of mine who flies a lot of the old stuff and we've been flying harbors together for a couple of years now working on a bit of a pair aerobatic thing um i was going to fly 98 for it um asa very generously offered his airplane um but as it turned out um, 44 had enough time on it and was performing well so we ended up using that and Pete flew 66 and we debuted the airplane um, uh, doing a formation pair aerobatic thing which was a first for both of us so yeah, it was fantastic it was a great way to start the show and then um, the other display was me leading Marco Sullivan and his with his Harvard and I had all the bomb racks and bombs underneath my aeroplane and the two guns in it. Um, so, you know, one pretty dirty aeroplane and one nice clean one. Um, yeah, and that all worked pretty well. And then while we had it on static display, um, I managed to negotiate um, borrowing a dummy 250-pound practice bomb from the Air Force Museum. They kindly loaned it to us for the weekend. And um, um, our marshals managed to um, get the 250-pound bomb out of the Smith Mosquito. So we were able to hang a pair of them underneath it, and that looked pretty damn cool. It did. Sitting there on the flight line with was it, eight little bombs, the two 250-pounders and the guns hanging out of it. It looked the dog's um, bollocks. <laughs> it was just a, just a shame we couldn't have. Um, had scarf ring and stuff in the back, but um, maybe that'll be next time. Yeah, yeah. The the thing that um, was really cool is seeing how many people came up and and were just absolutely fascinated by your aircraft. Uh, you know, it's obviously a new aircraft to air shows, and people were seeing it for the first time. But they absolutely love seeing the bombs on it and the guns and things like that. It's mm. just something a bit different. Really stood out. Yeah, and that was kind of the whole 
aim of the game with the airplane was to make it a bit different. It was never supposed to be a you know a show pony airplane, and you know, there's some parts of it that you know if, if we wanted to make it a concourse thing, uh, you know it would have just got out of hand. So we wanted to be a little bit practical with it. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty cool, you know, like standing next to the fence and looking at it and seeing all that stuff there that you just don't get to see every day. And it's reflecting its real history. I mean, it was an operational training aircraft. So, you know, most of the other Havards yeah. that are around, they were training pilots. They weren't training fighter pilots, you know what I mean? So uh, yeah. this is the next stage on. Uh, and, uh, I mean, some of, the, some of the other ones around, like 1015, were on the same unit. But um, they, they were basically training people how to fight and fly as a squadron sort of thing. So... Mm. Um, and the, and the next 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 progression after the Harvard would have been onto the P forty, uh, and then they would have gone to a squadron and up to the Pacific. So it's it's quite cool. And the other thing too, Bevan, that we haven't touched on is over the three years you and I have been looking at the actual history of that aircraft and how many people flew it. Um, we've been tracking down uh, records and logbooks and things like that, and we've got an amazing record now of of the aircraft. Yeah, it's, it's been a pretty big job going through all of the logbooks and you know, well, trying to track down specific logbooks and things. To, yeah. And it's exciting when you get a new logbook, yep. did they fly the airplane? And it's amazing how often it shows up. Yes. Um, particularly the wartime stuff because you know, I've still got um, all of the Form 700s and things from all of its time during the 50s when it flew. Um, so there's a pretty good record there, but the wartime stuff um, was a lot harder to get. So they never really kept good records, like you know, all the fighter squadrons and things had uh, uh, operations record books and things, but that sort of thing never really got kept for the training units. Yeah, exactly. Um, so pretty much everything we've got has come from log books and, uh, I would actually have to have a count. We must have, it must be probably a hundred, at least a hundred pilots that we've got. Must be heaps of them. I, yeah, I think so. Um, hang on, I'm just looking up the document now. We've got, uh, I think it's up to 23 pages now, A4 pages of entries that we've found in logbooks. And... Yeah, that's quite amazing, really. Certainly, when you start being able to connect the people with the aeroplane and the flights that they were doing at the time, yeah, that kind of you know adds an extra dimension to the history of the whole thing. And um, I've managed. I've also got the first logbook from when the aeroplane did its first production test flight um, out of the factory in the states. So um, I think that was the nineteenth of um, April. 1943 so it's just had its 80th birthday doesn't look a day uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah all of that stuff's pretty cool it's not, i don't think there's that many harvards around really that have got all of that original history no you know, right I, I, especially I, there wouldn't be many worldwide that have got the first logbook with it with the signature of the test pilot who flew it yeah exactly um the first time and the thing is, we've got all this history that we've put together, but we're still looking. There's, we've probably we've probably got about a quarter of the flights that it, that it actually did. Uh, yeah. I, I would imagine just based on my hours. So, um, 
you know, if anyone out there has a logbook uh, that belonged to a, a, an Air Force any pilot, any World War II pilot, anywhere, or, or 1950s pilot as well, yeah. um, but any of those, um, we, we'd love to, to hear from you. Um, you know, just contact me through the, I'll, I'll put my uh, contact on the page, but um, you can find me anywhere, anywhere, go to the Wingtip New Zealand Forum or whatever. Um, mm. But, you, you know, the, every single logbook tells a story and they all add to the big picture. And as you said, there's there's no records for the operational training units. And and we had we had um, uh, four operational training units uh, and there's no records for them at all during World War II. So, you know, what we've been the trying to do is... Yeah. Sorry? Is that the only things we get are from logbooks. Mm, yeah, so we need the logbooks to track them down. And then what, what we're doing as a long-term thing is also what we're extracting from those logbooks is trying to piece them together to build up a record of those lost uh, records of operational training units. So every single one, even if they never flew 1044 or, um, you know, they, they, if they might have flown every other aircraft on the unit, they're still valuable to our research. So... Um, it's you know it's it's uh it's really fascinating actually that there's hardly any photographs of the operational training units that it just didn't seem to happen but they were so yeah. active yeah. I've actually I've been told that there was something like um up to fifteen hundred different flights a day from a Hakia at, at its height in sort of nineteen forty four that's a lot of aircraft in the air that they had two fighter um operational training units and they had a bomber operational training unit. They had uh, um, um, service flying training school there, which had Harvards and Hines and Oxfords and things like that. There was a lot of stuff in the air there, you know. And so on a busy day, they could have yeah. supposedly fifteen hundred, or even if it was twelve hundred. That's still a lot of aircraft going up and down. And and yeah. the, the really interesting thing from these logbooks too, Bevan, as you well have seen, and from our um, what we've pieced together, is sometimes those aircraft were going up five times a day. Yeah, yeah, they must have had a lot of ground crew keeping them going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you think that, that sort of uh, that sort of um, amount of flying, and sometimes those flights are like an hour each, um, it, it would go through its hours pretty quickly before it had to have some sort of, you know, hangar servicing. So yeah, it must have been quite a rotation of them. It's, it's pretty cool. Eh? It's really interesting looking into it. Yeah, the more you find, the more you realise you don't know. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But, no, it's, it's certainly been an interesting exercise and um, it's just good to have it up and going. And I, yeah. I, just, you know, I suspect if I had have really known what was going to be involved before I started, I probably wouldn't have started. But, you know, once you get into it, um, the passion of the whole thing kind of takes over, and you just get it done. Um, but yeah, no, it's just certainly nice to have another one back up and going and living again, not not sitting, um, just wasting away. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, what you've done is fantastic, and it's the first Harvard to like new newly restored Harvard to fly again in what maybe. 15 or 20 years in New Zealand. But mm, that's probably the other, even longer than that. Yeah. But the other thing, too, 
it's just one owner, one individual, and you've done most of the work. Um, you know, a lot of these Harvards are all syndicate owned, so there's like 20 people putting the money in to get this thing going. Um, so, you know, it's pretty remarkable when you think about that. Yeah, well, it's certainly a, been a challenge. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's definitely good to have it up and going. And um, you know, the ultimate goal is to try and have it so that we can kind of share it with others and do rides with the the Harvard and the, the Tiger. Um, yep. Was, yeah, it was someone taking me for a ride that sparked my interest in it, you know, and really reinforced what I wanted to try and achieve. So, you know, it's nice to be able to take someone for an experience that they wouldn't otherwise get, whether it be just for an experience or something that they're really passionate about or that they haven't worked out that they're passionate for yet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the tiger. We didn't actually say that you would get. You got a bit sidelined last year um, from the Harvard to actually restore a tiger moth that was found in a barn as well. So, um, yeah, and you <laughs> yeah. and you got that flying sort of six months before you got the Harvard flying, which is just incredible. Two two restorations of aircraft that um, the tiger hadn't flown for twenty four years. It was in a a farm hangar um, on a on a farm strip and. Um, that's now flying and it looks absolutely beautiful. You did an amazing job of that. Um, she's called Queenie and um, people will see that out and about and, and definitely around Hood Aerodrome. Um, yeah, and so we're using that for rides. Um, hmm. So, yeah, Lucy came up with a pretty striking um, paint scheme for it and it looks really fantastic with the shiny cowlings um, and the big Union Jack on the tail. Absolutely. It looks fantastic. And then, you know, you've got the, the unique-looking Harvard that just stands out in the crowd, and uh, that's that's two aircraft that you've brought back from oblivion, basically, because nobody even knew they were in hangars. So, um, mm. Yeah, well, both airplanes, I never knew they existed until about two weeks before we ended up getting them. So Yeah, it's just incredible. Um, that's... Fantastic. And, and all yeah. this time, over those three years, uh, you know, you weren't living in Wanaka. You were commuting up and down from Masterson where you live, Uh you know, and, and you're working, you're doing your job, your day job as a beekeeper, and um, you know, just going up and down a, the a lot of juggling. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's what you've done is is just fantastic, Bevan. It's it's really brilliant. Um, mm, well, it's been a pretty big team effort, really. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's. I definitely had a lot of good people help out over the over the time, and wouldn't have been able to do it without each one of them. So. Um, yeah, the award at Omaka Grand Champion Warbird was definitely a um, you know a testament to everyone that put put the time and effort into it. Indeed, um, yes, yeah, yeah. That was that was a great moment. That was a big surprise. <laughs> no, I wasn't surprised at all because I was thinking you've got to you've got to get something. You've got to definitely get something. But the the Grand Champion, yeah, perfect, perfect. The, the one last thing that I, I would say is also two days ago, Anzac Day, you flew 1044 over the cenotaph at Masterton and in, in the um, memorial fly pass for the dawn parade. How did that feel? Yeah, it was pretty cool to be able to um, you know, do my little bit to commemorate the, all of the people that sacrificed so much during the wars but it's it nice to be able to do it in the Harvard and 
you know, an actual, you know, World War Two airplane. Yeah. Um, just the you know, normally do it in the chippy, which is you know post-war, but it was nice. That it was a perfect crisp morning. I think it was like one and a half or two degrees or something silly outside. Not a breath of wind, and yeah, it was just nice to have the the big rumbling old donk up the front purring away and. And the video that I saw afterwards of you know, going over was just yeah, nice touch. Awesome, awesome. Hopefully, we can make a bit of a habit of that. It's nice to be able to, you know, we've got the airplanes and this, you know, doing our little bit to keep the history alive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well done, Bevan. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I'm just stunned at how much you've achieved in, in such a short amount of time with that aircraft and everything else that you're doing and it, it it's just the beginning hey this this is great well done yeah may it continue yeah absolutely thank you very much cool thanks dave that was the wings over new zealand show with dave homewood